0: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello, and welcome to show number three hundred and ninety nine. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. 399, man. And then there was another 100 before that. This year. So, yes, welcome to the show. I'll tell you what's coming to today's show. First up is Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Then we have a little short bit of fiction, Close Encounter of the Worst Kind by Y.N. Ton. Then we have Mountain Screamers by Doug Suaz. That is all in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, lots to mention on the eve or the, the kind of week before show 400. First up, we did the walk. My son and Reed, it was a week today where we start from Wall's End and walk right across the country, 84 miles following the Roman Wall. And Bear with us, I'll just go into a little bit of TTL. you know what I mean? It was hell on earth, man. My God, four days. That was the one that, and I can't—I couldn't really change it by then. Like I say, I wanted to do it before, and it's been a bit of an ambition. And just me days off the way they were falling, it was going to be ages before I could kind of get another little six day together. And I wanted a day basically so I could rest and recover. We're doing it in four days. Oh. <gasps> Man, you're basically talking 20 odd mile a day. And the third day we got lost. Do you know what I mean? As well, missed the signs and got lost. So I think there was a couple of three, three more mile added on. And camping, don't do camping. This is, these are my little kind of tips if you want to do something like the Roman wall. And mind I got loads of, you know, people on Facebook following us. It was just lovely having kind of people along, you know, because I was kind of posting re- regular updates there. But don't camp. Do you know I mean? I'll camp if you want, but if you're taking like a longer time. But when you honestly, you're setting, you've are setting you got to set off before nine o'clock to get any, you know, if you're doing like a four day one before six o'clock at night, then you've got to put your tent up. Then you've got to take it down and get it ready for the next day. You know, and if it rains, which you did the first night, setting the tent up, it's just hideous. During you know mean? the, we were sleeping out three nights out of the four and the four days. And the last night, we, we, this was, the, was supposed to be an easy one because the wife was coming along. Melanie was coming along, and she was meeting with Father the, the walk. We got lost, and it must have been about 25 miles we did. Do you know what I mean? And that was supposed to be an easy one because this is where the car was parked, and we were going to toot into Brampton and have a little shop and, you know, something to eat. And it was by the time we were all sorted out, you know what I mean? We got there and found the place. It was just too shattered to... Put the tent up. So there was actually bunk barn, like a bunk barn, and it was lovely. Do you know what I mean? There was like kind of these. I think there's about six or seven bunk beds. It had like a little living room and a kitchen and a nice big shower, and it was just why didn't we do that? You know, and the dog just kind of crashed and burned. Ralph crashed and burned every night. You know, he must have run forty miles to hour twenty every day. And there's if you go on the Facebook and say have a look at me kind of post. You know, I think there's four or five in you know, the. Update ones, you know, the pictures just, you know, you sometimes you walk into like the almost the city center of Newcastle, and then within a day, you know, you're out in the wilds. And it's just like once you're on the kind of what is everyone recognizes the Roman wall section, do you know, you're in the middle of nowhere? Do you know what I mean? And a couple of times. Well, I was kind of, when I'm walking, you set off, you know, eventually I'll dip, you know what I mean? But this is kind of getting towards the kind of 20 mile mark and I just like, I, it's it's hard, you know what I mean? I'm just tired and that. Reed would kind of dip after five miles, do you know what I mean? Like, Dad, I, can't, I don't know if I can do it, Dad, Dad. This is five mile into like a 25 mile walk and he would just dip, but find a little <laughs> little coffee shop there, cake and tea, sweet tea, and a slice of cake, and he was a way bang off again, and he would be the one that was kind of carrying me at the end, you know, so it was lovely, and like I say, we, we did it, and I'd sneaked into the car some T-shirts for her and some certificates, and I got a little fridge magnet for Melanie, who did the one day, you know, but we all got a certificate there, and it's, it's lovely, and hopefully I'm, I'm putting together and I'll put them some pictures on the, on the, the kind of Facebook or somewhere like that. I'm putting together like one of those books you get printed of the event for read. You know what I mean? So hopefully he's always got this kind of memory. And but now, where now? And now I'm fancying down the Thumbling coastline. It's a six day walk down there. And actually, I don't think I'd kind of do it straight away. I might do a couple of days. But there's a, there's a, 60, a 64 mile walk from Berwick upon Tweed to Walkworth, and I think it's you know, there's about six days there, 14 mile slots, which is nice. That's all right, you know, 20 odd is just painful to be quite honest. So, that's our little adventure, and like I say, it was a week today we were kind of heading off, and just some fabulous people you're meeting along the way. Do you know what I mean? Just honestly, if anybody's thinking of doing something like that and especially doing it with the kind of a family member go for it man honestly especially like your, your kids do you know what I mean because they're going to be up in a way and they'll not want to do it with you do you know what I mean and it was lovely Reed was away from kind of say Xbox and stuff like that for four I mean and he chit chitter chatted on do you know what I mean normally you know he, he's just a normal kid he kind of in his room you know on his mates with his Xbox kind of thing he chit chitter chatted on and it was lovely do you know what I mean really lovely So, yes, there you go. little kind of inside This is meant to be a science fiction show. (laughs) But anyways, before that as well, just a heads up. Like I say, next week is show 400. And guess what? Jeremy has done it again. And I wouldn't even attempt to get this author. You know what I mean? This is kind of one of the kind of holy grails there of kind of science fiction authors. And it is, you guys, a legend. Do you know what I mean? A legend there. And... We're not going to have Jerry to be just kind of, you know, brazen, just kind of drops him an email and gets the story there, you know what I mean? So look out for next week's show, show 400. We have, like, one of the pillars of modern-day science fiction writers on this show. And to kind of coincide with that, our good friends at Octagon Technology, we're going to have a little competition. So it's kind of up there now, and all you need to do is go over to Twitter and kind of answer... My, you know, the little question, what is my favorite science fiction book? And we've got four prizes, you know, so there's four chances of winning. The first prize is by, (laughs) who is the big author next week. Then we've got another prize, which is Joe Haldeman's The Forever War. We've got book Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes and Cantigal for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr., and like I say, Clive and Diane, and a big thank you to Camila at, you know, Octagon Technology, just helping out so much, you know what I mean, kind of with the show and that. They've supplied the books, which is fantastic. So the question is, what is my favorite science fiction book? And all you've got to do is go on and have a check out on Octagon at Octagon T. That's the Octagon Technologies Twitter account. You'll see they've been posting these kind of 400 special tweets. Just reply to that tweet and, you know, tell us what my favourite book is. And there's a clue, there's clues, because it is a bit of a twist one there, but there's clues in the prizes, if anyone, <laughs> sure, you must know what kind of what I like. So, yes, that's coming up. So, look for at Octagon T, look for the 400th little kind of tweets they've been pushing out all the time there, and just answer the question, and then you're in with, you know, a chance to win. How cool is that? But we are getting on to show 399, which is, you know, an achievement. And just, just, hey man, come on, man. How good is that? The, we've got, coming up straight away then is Mr. JJ Campanella. And just, just want to give a kind of heads up to the gym as well. Do you know what I mean? We're all kind of, you know, talking about you. And fingers crossed for your kind of health gym. Do you know what I mean? I know there's little kind of health scare there. And he mentions it in, the, in this week's episode as well. So you know what, you, you have my thoughts, Jim.:
3: Greetings and plutonic stipulations, my micrometrically fantastic listeners, and welcome to this August 2015 science news update. I'm your host for this blubberously sonorous science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. I again thank my listeners for their concern over my sleep apnea. Over July, I continued to have you guys email me about your thoughts on how I should deal with it. One of our listeners, uh, Michael Philippus, was especially worried. He thinks that I am being quite inane about a serious disease and I should be taking it much more seriously as a threat that I am. Thank you, Michael. Um, thank you for your disquiet about my mental state. I am going to my doctor for a checkup in the next two weeks. And uh, I will make my concerns very clear to him. However, you must understand that my humor is a bit of a defense mechanism. If I had cancer or heart disease or mad cow disease or the dropsies, for that matter, I would still be inane about it and not take it very seriously. We're all going to die of something. And it doesn't really matter what hideousness befalls us in the end, does it? especially since we have no control over that. Uh, so why worry about it? It's in the hands of God as far as I'm concerned. The sad, laughable irony is, is that my lovely wife and kids will tell you this, that even though life-threatening diseases are not high on my worry list, I instead go uh, bonkers over stupid, unimportant things like uh, who left the full bottle of milk out on the counter for hours or why there's an entire Lego set in pieces on the floor of my dining room or who put the two-foot-long scratch in my Vinny van. But the upshot, Michael, is that the more serious the disease is, if I'm likely to get it, the less serious I'm really going to be about it. Uh, that's That's just me. I don't know about other people. But let's start the evening's news story with a world record in science. I love world records. A study published August 17th. In the journal Nature provides multiple lines of evidence, actually, that pressurized hydrogen sulfide is the so far the highest temperature superconductor ever discovered. Dr. Mikhail Aramitz of the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry uh, made the information public back in June on archive.com, but his group submitted the work to a real peer reviewed journal to examine their data uh, right afterwards. And the work shows that pressurized hydrogen sulfide is a superconductor at roughly 200 Kelvin. Now, for non-scientists out there, that's about minus 73 degrees Celsius, or about minus 100 Fahrenheit if you live in the U.S. or England. If confirmed, the discovery would nudge physicists closer to their ultimate goal of a room temperature superconductor, which is about 300 Kelvin. No other known material is superconducting so far above 164 Kelvin. Aramets and his colleagues crushed hydrogen sulfide samples between diamonds at more than a million times standard atmospheric pressure. The researchers report that at temperatures as high as 203 Kelvin, the samples expelled magnetic fields, uh, exhibiting something called the Meisner effect. This magnetic evidence is allegedly a stronger indicator of superconducting than the electrical resistance measurements that the team originally used to make their case back in June. Now, the whole thing is already becoming quite controversial. Lots of scientists are screaming to see if a separate group of physicists can replicate the finding. I guess they're worried about the, the something like cold fusion uh, and that controversy coming about. Many... Think it's still too early to uncork the champagne, but confirmation could take time because there aren't exactly a whole bunch of labs out there that can perform the precision measurements at pressures of more than a million times, which you find anywhere on the face of the earth. Aramet says, quote, if we understand the structure of these compounds under pressure, that could enable physicists to devise materials that seamlessly shuttle electrons at more reasonable pressures and temperatures. And the hilarious, ironic thing, and it may be obvious, is the idea that we finally found a superconductor that can function at a fairly low temperature, or a fairly high temperature, I should say, which has been uh, the physics holy grail for years, but it it only works under the most absurdly high pressures possible that you can't exactly use to run your desktop PC. Uh, Next story, another record. Well, I guess it depends on how you define what a record is. NASA scientists have discovered a planet more similar to Earth than any other yet documented. Uh, Kepler-452b, as it's called, is 60% larger than our planet and has a year that's approximately 385 days long. Nice. I'm ready to move. I'd already be younger if I was living there by two whole years. Anyway, Dr. John Jenkins of the Kepler Project's data analysis team, told reporters at a news conference July 23rd, quote, Today the Earth is a little less lonely because there's a new kid on the block, unquote. Uh, okay. Jenkins, that's a fairly silly statement. The Earth has never been very lonely, and a slightly larger planet 1,400 light years away is not going to resolve that loneliness by very much. But let's just go with it. Kepler-452b is in the Cygnus constellation, and its sun, Kepler-452, is pretty similar to our own, with the same temperature, the diameter just about 10% larger. Kepler-452b is estimated to be five times as dense as Earth, with about twice the gravity. So alien soldiers from there will be pretty darn strong when they get here. Okay, I'm joking, obviously. But there's actually a pretty good chance that something is alive on that planet because it is way older than Earth. Jenkins says, quote, It's awe-inspiring to consider that this planet has spent 6 billion years longer in the habitable zone of its star than Earth. That's substantial opportunity for life to arise should all the necessary ingredients and conditions for life exist on that planet, unquote. Jenkins finishes with, Quote, because of its size and distance, it is unlikely we will ever find out more about Kepler 452b for a considerable time, if ever. Unquote. Not exactly a sanguine guy, but I guess Piers Anthony was right. We need a macroscope, or we will never exactly see what's out there. Next story. Well, even without a macroscope, we are certainly living in the future. Here's another story that brings that home. A few years ago, I wrote a a genre novel called The Standards of Creation, in which one of the main conceits was the idea of taking the biochemical pathway for making an opiate and transferring that entire pathway into an entirely different plant species, such as wheat or corn. When I wrote about putting an entire transgenetic pathway into a new organism, 10 or 12 years ago, it was still kind of speculative. Well, science has caught up with me. Dr. Christina Smolk and her research group from Stanford University have engineered yeast to make sugar into a chemical called thebane, which is a precursor to opiates like morphine. The work brings together the beginnings of the pathway and the central stages of the pathway into a single strain of yeast which has never existed before. And the researchers published their findings August 13th in the journal Science. Making yeast that can eventually produce an opiate required enzymes from mammals, plants, bacteria, and a few from the yeast itself. The result is a proof of concept that yeast can take in sugar and ferment it into opiates and other drugs with the goal of using them for research into new pharmaceuticals. Smoke estimates that the full pathway from sugar to morphine would require a 7 million fold improvement in yield before it can put a poppy out of business. And I find that very interesting because opiate yield was precisely the problem that the fictional protagonist in my novel had when he was working on the same problem. By the way, you didn't think you'd get away with a plug from me, did you? The standards of creation is still only in audio form narrated by yours truly. And one of these days I'll get around to PDF formatting it for actual uh, hard copy publication on Amazon, or I guess you call it actually ebook publication on Amazon. However, it can be purchased on uvulaaudio.com for the cool price of 99 cents for almost 20 hours of audio. If you're curious about it, take a listen to the free preview, which is available. It can be purchased through the protected PayPal link on the page. And again, that was uvulaaudio.com. U-V-U-L-A-A-U-D-I-O dot All right. Onwards and upwards. So if someone is being generous, do they have an ulterior motive? Can doing a good deed mean more than simply the good deed itself? Humans have an enormous capacity for generosity. We give money to the homeless in need of shelter, to distant strangers in times of catastrophe. We even give indirectly by donating money to friends and colleagues, fundraising for charities. But why do we give? And how much are we actually willing to part with? The July issue of the journal Current Biology, Doctors Nicola Raihani and Sarah Jane Smith of University College London examine these questions. It's not surprising at all that the answer to Well, all the questions pretty much comes down to sex and genetic selection. Every year, athletes raise money for charity by actually finishing the London Marathon. After picking a charity, uh, runners annoy everyone they know to pledge money that is paid out following the race completion. And the marathon makes millions. But it also provided Raihani and Smith with an opportunity to study patterns of human generosity, because all the donations are online, and they're completely public. So they were able to study who made the donations and to whom. Each donation page has a photo of the runner, and then a list of the money given by each donor. So the donors know the recipients, and crucially, they can also see what the previous person gave. And it turns out that this context matters a great deal. The authors found that when following an average donor, individuals in turn contributed the average amount. However, when the previous donor gave an especially large donation, this triggered a response known as competitive helping, which results in the second donor outgiving the first. However, here is the kicker. The competitive helping was gender-specific. While donations from females were unaffected, the gender of earlier donors, men gave more if the previous large donor was a male. More interesting and kind of sad, the extent of competitive helping among men was entirely dependent on the attractiveness of the runner herself. In practical terms, this amounted to about 30 pounds more per donation. In short, the researchers found that Men compete with each other for the perceived recognition of attractive female fundraisers, and the manner in which this is done is by flaunting their cash. Humans are not alone in using social cues to adjust their behavior. Uh, Males vying for access to females use all manner of exaggerated displays to convince potential mates of their suitability and the extent of their signaling increases with an audience. Think of peacocks or the mating dances of the birds of paradise. But this study clarifies that for humans, males work harder to beat each other when their perceived mate is a more attractive catch. At the same time, the men are using fairly honest signals of their own quality. If you think about it, I mean, not only do the men in these fundraising games provide direct evidence of their wealth, and that's a quality that's hard to fake, but they also hint at their generous, good-hearted tendencies And hey, who doesn't want a mate that's rich and generous? Hmm? But is this actually generosity, or is it simply a mating dance showing how lovely your plumage is? True generosity is entirely selfless, and is it any less so if it's tainted with cryptically selfish and largely unconscious motivations? Uh, Well, I say yes, it is. I mean, true generosity, you expect nothing back. And here, these men, whether consciously or unconsciously, are showing off in hopes of getting some noogie or even a long-term mate. The follow-up to this study will be to see how successful the men were in their plumage dances. Raihani and Smith uh, intend to seek to identify the consequences for these competitive helpers. In the end, do they get the girl? Do the fundraisers run straight from the marathon into the arms of their donors? Probably not, but we'll have to wait until the sponsorships from the next London Marathon are in to probably find out. So that comment about male sexists naturally leads into a story about whether male sexists will go the way of all flesh, so to speak, and disappear from the scene. And that appears not to be quite the case quite yet. I have commented previously that the Y chromosome in mammalian males, not just humans, is not going to disappear as soon as some scientists predicted a, a decade or two ago, when it was suggested that the male Selecting chromosome is slowly fading away because it is a fragile thing and not needed. Well, the Y chromosome has been fading as genes disappeared from it over millions of years. But where did they go? That's been the question that's really arisen more recently. In the May issue of the journal Genome Biology, Dr. Jennifer Hughes of the MIT Whitehead Institute, suggests one scenario and what may be happening. Over the past few hundred million years, the mammalian Y chromosome has lost hundreds of genes. That loss has puzzled scientists. Many of those genes were not sex-specific, per se, but instead contributed to broad and important cellular functions. Hughes says, quote, we know that the Y chromosome started as a normal chromosome, in fact, The X and Y used to be identical, if you go back 300 million years in time. But if you look at the Y today, you see it's very small in size compared to the X. It started with over 600 genes and now has less than 100. We wanted to understand why that happened and whether the Y chromosome was set to continue down that path and perhaps, as some have suggested, disappear altogether, unquote. So back in 2012... I conveyed a story on this podcast from the Hughes lab telling how she had discovered that the human male doesn't have to worry about the loss of the Y chromosome. It's only lost a single gene in the past 25 million years. This suggests that the remaining genes have been preserved because they are serving important functions. In the last three years, Hughes and her colleagues decided to take a deeper look at the Y chromosome. They used computational analysis of publicly available genomic sequences from a number of mammalian species, including marsupials, apes, rodents, and cattle. In doing that, they found eight cases of key genes that had relocated to non-sex chromosomes when the corresponding wide-linked gene was lost. Hughes comments, quote, This is reminiscent of a phenomenon that we've seen in a funny species of rat that only lives in Japan this species has lost its Y chromosome altogether. And that's because many of the important genes that were on the Y chromosome relocated to autosomes, non-sex chromosomes. So what was thought to be a single isolated quirk of one species may be more widespread, and another way that the Y chromosome can cope with losing genes, unquote. Hughes argues that these findings confirm the importance of the Y chromosome genes. She says, quote, the Y chromosome is certainly not going anywhere. The genes that have been conserved in the Y chromosome perform functions important enough that they've been preserved for hundreds of millions of years. And in the cases where it looks like a gene may have disappeared, we found it may not have. It just found a new home elsewhere, confirming the importance of the Y chromosome, not just for males, but perhaps for the entire biology of the human species, unquote. The lesson here? Just because some genetic component looks like it has disappeared, it ain't necessarily so. The next story is a major breakthrough, a bit scary, but a major breakthrough. It's a leap forward in synthetic biology. You may or may not remember this little bit of cell biology. If you don't, the part of the cell that makes proteins is called the ribosome. It's literally the microscopic anvil upon which all of Earth biology is based, since without it, cells would be unable to function and make no proteins. Scientists at the University of Illinois at Chicago and Northwestern say that they have engineered a tethered ribosome that works nearly as well as the authentic organelle that produces all the proteins and enzymes within the cell. The engineered ribosome may enable the production of new drugs and the next generation of biomaterials and lead to a better understanding of how ribosomes function, according to the researchers. The artificial ribosome, called a ribo-T, was created in the laboratory of Dr. Alexander Menken and Dr. Michael Jewett. This human-made ribosome may be able to be manipulated in the laboratory to do things that natural ribosomes can't. When the cell makes a protein, A messenger RNA is copied from DNA. Uh, The ribosome's two subunits, a large and a small one, unite onto the mRNA to form a functional unit that assembles the protein. Again, kind of like a nano-sized anvil. Once the protein molecule is complete, the ribosome subunits, both of which are themselves made up of RNA and protein, separate from each other. In a new study in the journal Nature, the researchers describe the design and properties of the artificial ribotea, which has subunits that don't separate. RiboT may be able to be tuned to produce unique and functional polymers for exploring ribosome functions or producing designer therapeutics and drugs and maybe even one day non-biological polymers. Mencken says, quote, we felt like there was a very small chance ribotea could work but we did not really know, so we tried it anyway. And who knew? Unquote. Yeah, I guess, who do. So the last story of the night just goes to show that even in a very old branch of science, where we thought we knew everything, there are always surprises. Cytology is a branch of biology which is the equivalent of anatomy in large animals. It's the science which examines microanatomy of a cell, essentially, and examines how a cell divides and moves, etc. Organelles are the structures in complex cells which do many of the important jobs that cells need to stay alive. Things like the nucleus, which protects the DNA of the cell, or the lysosome, which is a combination recycling center and garbage dump. All the organelles have a job, and cells have been stared at since the late 1600s under microscopes. So it was thought that there was pretty much nothing new under the sun that you could see in terms of structure. There were no more organelles to be found. They had all been accounted for. Well, in an event that is the biological equivalent of finding a new heart or lung or kidney in the human body, a new cellular organelle has been found. Well, you may not be excited about it, but I am because I get to teach about an additional structure in my cell biology classes. Wahoo! Something new to confuse my poor pupils. But the structure is called the mesh. It's a terrible name, by the way, but it's actually quite descriptive. Four years ago, Dr. Stephen Royal, a researcher at the University of Warwick in Coventry, in the UK, obviously, and his team regularly used 2D electron microscopy to study mitosis, the process of cell division. They had a particular interest in the mitotic spindle. That's a tiny network of fibers in the cell that's responsible for accurately separating chromosomes into daughter cells during cell division, when the cells split apart and copy themselves. The spindle is made up of an array of proteins, including microtubules, that bundle together in groups of about 20 to 40 to form something called the kinetocore fibers. And these fibers generate the force needed to pull the chromosomes into the newly forming daughter cells. More than 40 years ago, electron microscopists first noticed an electron density between the microtubules in the kinetochore fibers. In other words, it seemed like there was something thicker there, and, or there seemed to be something there between those, those individual microtubules. And over time and with improving technology, scientists have found that this in, increase in density between the fibers represented a 5-nanometer-thick bridge stretching from about 6 to 20 nanometers to connect microtubules together. Royal says, quote, we could tell that some bridges were crooked and that there were lots of different shapes of bridges. We wanted to see how the bridges looked in three dimensions. And that simple goal led Royal to introduce a new technology into his laboratory, which is 3D microscopy. Ultimately, he was able to discover this new cellular structure. Royal eventually found that these inter-microtubule bridges were not simple struts connecting two adjacent microtubules together but instead were interconnected with each contacting multiple microtubules within the kinetochore fiber to form a, a sort of net-like support system around the microtubules and the fibers the early images that royal has generated have toppled cell biologists view of the so-called bridges connecting microtubules and instead they found this new cellular structure, this net-like mesh, to be something they have never seen before. Royal's team developed a semi-automated segmentation method for their 3D model building and held extensive discussions with colleagues at their university to develop 3D spatial statistics. They also collected tomograms in areas without microtubules to confirm that the connecting structures didn't exist in those areas. They logged the position of all the microtubules in three dimensions and measured the volume and number of contacts and locations of all the attachments. And the more images they collected, the more their confidence has grown that they have in fact found a new cellular structure, which they call the mesh. So how important is this new structure? Yeah, it's obviously important because it holds the microtubules in place, but so what? Well, Royal suggests that when the mesh does not work correctly, cellular problems will arise with reproduction of cells. Royal says, quote, work from several laboratories suggests that kinetochore fiber stability is important for accurate chromosome segregation. Too little or too much stability makes mitosis and cell division become inefficient. This could lead to chromosome missegregation, which is something seen in many solid tumors. Our idea is that the mesh is holding microtubules together in the kinetochore fiber and stabilizing them, unquote. He further goes on to say that they've looked at the changes in mesh composition and that those changes can result in mitotic problems. And that gives them two options. He says, first, we can think of ways to correct mesh composition in cells to stop them from making mistakes in mitosis and becoming cancerous. Or second, they might be able to target the mesh with drugs to prevent cells from dividing at all. Since the mesh is specific to mitotic microtubules, this approach would get around the terrible side effects that microtubule poisons, such as the taxanes, that are used to treat several cancer types. What do I say to all this? Well, I say, c'est la vie. I guess you never can tell. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep your thoughts pure when you donate to those cute runners. Start petitioning Congress to fund that macroscope. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim
2: Campanella. There you go, Jim, sir. Thank you very much. Thinking about you there. Big sending big thoughts over the over the pond. So the short fiction is Close Encounter of the Worst Kind, kind sorry, by Y. N. Ton. I'll give you a little you know, heads up about Y. N. Ton. This story was originally published in Everyday Fiction. Y. N. Ton is a writer and internet security consultant. She has a bachelor's degree in ecology and evolutionary biology from Princeton University. A law degree from Vermont. Oh, go on. Law school and alum from Cat Rambo's online writing workshop. She's hiked parts of the Great Continental Divide and Joy tuk-tuk rides in Bangkok. A Puerto Rican expat living in Canada, she survives the winter snuggling up with her husband and two cats. When she's not watching K-dramas, which I'm not too sure what is, you can find her socialising on Google+. This story is narrated by Al Barkley. Al Barkley has worked extensively over 15 years, most notably playing alongside James McAvoy and Michael Sheen in Stephen Fry's Bright Young Things, and with David Thewlis in Luke Besson's The Lady. He will be in the West End at the Arts Theatre this December playing Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Wow, go on there, Al, sir. This is the best man. This is the one. This is the kind of money by you He once drank two bottles of gin with Peter O'Toole and danced the night away in Camden with the Amy Winehouse. Oh man, man, you've got to tell me about that Peter O'Toole incident. Wow man, what a legend. So Starship Silver is very proud to present.
0: Close Encounter of the Worst Kind by YN Tom Maggie was determined not to take any chances her Thanksgiving dinner would be a success. She had planned it for far too long just to have it ruined by disintegration, or worse yet, by James Brenner making another inappropriate pass at Dr. Sorrento Quintero like he had at last year's party. So when she sent out the invitations, she made sure to attach a copy of the government's e-pamphlet on alien visitation and interactions, as well as to write a personal note to James, admonishing him to be on his best behaviour. As her grandmother would say, forewarned is to be forearmed. Should an alien materialise out of thin air, Maggie wanted her guests to be prepared. She also wanted to have James sitting as far away as possible from Dr. Quintero, so she spent a better part of the afternoon playing around with the seating arrangements. A daunting task, since she simply couldn't seat her guests anywhere. Personalities had to be complemented. Conversation maximised. She kept shuffling the seating cards around the table until she found a suitable configuration, all the while trying her hardest not to think about the aliens. Ever since the Nazca landing five years ago, aliens kept gatecrashing the homes of unsuspecting hosts and hostesses, siphoning off all their wine with metre-long protuberances, reanimating the turkey to the horror of the guests, then finishing off the night by absconding with the decorative miniature pumpkins and gourds. The government insisted no one openly confront the aliens on their boorish manners, lest the complainant inadvertently start an intergalactic war. "'All grievances were to be reported solely "'to the office of the Ombudsman of Alien Affairs. "'The e-pamphlet had those words in bold uppercase. "'Maggie hoped it wouldn't come to that. "'A dinner party was stressful enough "'without getting the government involved. "'An hour before her guests were to arrive, "'Maggie slipped into her little black dress "'and returned her much-thumbed copy of Emily Post's etiquette "'to the living room's barrister bookcase. "'While she was tuning the plasma walls "'to a relaxing melody of classical music, "'the doorbell rang. "'Maggie checked her watch.' Whoever was at the door was five minutes early. Giving herself a quick glance in the foyer mirror, she practised her best smile, then opened the door. There was no one there. She was about to close the door when she felt all the hairs on her arms standing on end. There was a crackling in the air, the faint smell of ozone carried on the crisp autumn wind followed by the cloying and unmistakable stench of a close encounter of the third kind. Standing frozen at the foyer, she kept telling herself it was for the good of the planet she had to put up with her unwanted visitor. Top officials had deemed the aliens mostly benign. When they weren't busy upsetting mealtimes, they performed good works around the globe like fairy godmothers, flitting in and out of people's lives, finding lost objects, or mending broken hearts. Maggie closed her eyes and recited the three basic rules delineated in the government e pamphlet Rule 1 Do not touch the alien. Rule 2 Do not talk to the alien. Rule three, do not make eye contact with the alien. She turned around slowly and from the periphery of her vision caught a glimpse of a gelatinous glob undulating in her foyer, sliming its way towards the kitchen. What xenobiologists had concluded was the alien cerebral cortex was lighting up in a bioluminescent display of colours much like the comb jellyfish when luring its prey. Maggie resisted the urge to follow it. Even if she'd wanted to, she had no time. Her guests began to make their way up her drive, and one by one she took their coats and urged them to make themselves at home. James Brenner was the last to greet her at the threshold. He kissed her on the cheek, his lips lingering longer than deemed polite, his hand lower than what would be anatomically considered the small of her back. Maggie's grip on the doorknob tightened. He had been drinking. It was bad enough she had an alien shuffling around in her kitchen. No doubt by now there was a reanimated half-cooked turkey losing its stuffing as it pranced over her polished parquet floors, but it was James who would no doubt ruin everything with his goatish ways, so instead of leading him into the dining room she asked him to be a dear and check on the turkey for her. As she joined the rest of her guests at the dinner party, an ominous clashing of pots and pans emanated from the kitchen, the crescendo punctuated by a shrill and shortened cry, followed by a loud pop. With any luck, there would be a smoking pair of shoes where there was once a James Brenner. After all, Maggie was never one to take chances.
2: They go big thank you to Y Anton. Listen, thank you so much. And Al, tremendous, tremendous narration. Thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction. And it is... Mountain Screamers by Doug Suaz which was originally published in Asimov's. And, like, see, God, mate, you kind of get better than that. And I'll give you a little heads up about Doug. Doug says he wrote Mountain Screamers because he wanted to see how cougars would fare in the future. He imagined they would kind of marvel by society while battling extinction. And was pleasantly surprised when the characters... Took over the story. He says his grandparents, one set of them a pair of teachers, the other dairy farmers, edged their way in and he was grateful for this. Asimov was his first pro sale. He says the day he got the news he called his wife immediately. She screamed and he <laughs> He did made-up karate moves. They were both at work. Do you know what I mean? I just think that's fab. That's what it means, man, to be a kind of you know, a kind of, to get that seal. It's just outstanding. Way to go, Doug. He says he's had several now stories sold in semi-professional markets, and he was placed the finalist in the Writers of the Future contest. He can be found at, and there's a link on to com. And, you know, just well done, Doug. You know what I mean? Like I said, to get a a story published in Asimov's is just cracking. It is narrated by Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan was born in southern New Mexico in the nexus between Area 51, Trinity Site and the Spaceport America. He attended culinary school in Portland, Oregon, and have managed a number of restaurants, cafes and bakeries. By day, he is the produced manager for a natural grocery store, and by night, Practice narration and voice acting while dreaming of a future filled with world travel via sailboat alongside his lovely wife, Paige. And Jonathan's done a few narrations for Starship Sova, and was Jonathan and I listened. were so appreciated. Do you know what I mean? Wow, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Mountain Screamers
1: by Doug C. Souza. Read by Jonathan Sharp. The tawny cougar crept toward Grandma and let out a hiss. I lined the sight atop the barrel, to its shoulder. Thick fur rose in a prickly streak down its back. Its snarl quivered with each breath. Anytime you're ready, William, Grandma whispered, keeping her eyes locked on the approaching mountain lion. The dart shot out too high. The needle clinked off the sandstone, useless. The cougar's black-tipped tail puffed up and nearly doubled in width. Its attention shifted between Grandma and the spent trank dart. A soft squeal escaped my throat. Now, I had its full attention, sandy eyes locked with mine. "'Reload!' Grandma said, calmly, then gave several sharp clicks with her tongue. The mountain lion's gaze returned to her. For a moment, the large cat appeared to consider retreating. A high-pitched whistle mixed with a guttural groan came from somewhere deep inside the animal. It gingerly stepped forward. I grabbed a second dart. The movement didn't go unnoticed. Grandma clicked her tongue louder. I pulled back the bolt handle, set the dart, and lined up my second shot. Deep breath, hold it, and fire. It struck true. The cougar let out a piercing cry. It curled, biting at the dart in its shoulder. When that didn't work, it pawed at it with its hind legs. No, 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 Grandma launched into the large cat's back, her cowboy hat falling off behind her. Don't go choking yourself. She slapped a polymesh net across its mouth. The wiry material cinched automatically around the snout. I stepped forward to help. Back, Grandma ordered, as she jumped up and waved me away. Reload and keep an eye out for stragglers. Throw the piezo ball. The cougar reached for the polymesh muzzle with its claws extended. Its movements grew more sluggish with each attempt. I wasn't worried about stragglers. Grandma taught me long ago that mountain lions were solitary animals. No cubs were around, so this wasn't a mother. I clicked the piezo ball on and rolled it away. Its whine pierced my eardrums before reaching a frequency I no longer heard. The ultrasonic pitch would deter any curious wildlife. Finally, the beast let out a heavy sigh and crumpled to the ground. Grandma yanked the trank dart and tossed it away. The giant chest heaved much more slowly. Glassy eyes stared blankly ahead for a moment, and then shut, as the cougar stilled. "'Sorry, honey,' Grandma said as she stood and loosened the polymesh. She wouldn't remove it completely until we had the magnificent beast tucked safely in its cage. "'Didn't mean to yell at you. Didn't want some flailing claw to snag you, that's all.' "'It's okay,' my voice chirped, like a second-grader's. I coughed and cleared my throat.' I handed her hat to her, she bunched up loose gray strands, and retied her ponytail, before pulling her hat taut. She'd bought me a similar hat when I'd first arrived. Take care of that hat and you'll have it for life, she'd said. I liked the stiff leather feel and the wide brim, but the tight fit took some getting used to. Your mother would have my neck if she knew I'd let you get this close. She shook her head and then waved me closer. She petted the mountain lion's burly side. Go ahead. I did so. The fur went much deeper than I'd imagined. Warm, I commented. Yeah, he was extra fired up. Because of us? Not just that, Grandma laughed. Nature, she pointed to the silver pole that stuck out of the ground a few feet away. What's that? We use a blend of potent pheromones to draw males out. Imagine his disappointment when he goes looking for a girlfriend and finds us relocators instead. Relocators. Grandma had said the plural. "'meaning I was considered a relocator. "'Mostly I pictured myself as an assistant. "'A wave of pride ran through me as I knelt and petted the large cat. "'A capture I had helped with. "'Best summer hiatus ever. "'We'd captured nearly ten mountain lions in the past three days, "'but this was the first that had me out of our drifter, aiming a rifle. "'Somehow the creature had evaded our trackers "'while Grandma was checking on the whereabouts of a different mountain lion. "'The afternoon sun continued to bake the barren land.' The Mexican border was just twenty miles to the south. How anything thrived out here was beyond me. Feel the ears, she whispered. I pinched the velvet material, marveling at how delicate they felt. Grandma pulled her sidekick from its holster and ran it under the animal's chest. The data pad brought up various specks across the main screen. Interesting, she said. There's a tracker tag after all. Malfunctioning, though. Probably old. That explains how he snuck up on us. Much like human life chips, tracker tags can be programmed to release a tranquilizer agent if needed. Grandma had sent the command from her sidekick when the mountain lion first appeared, but nothing had happened. So what do we do now? I asked. Gotta pull it. She typed a new command into her sidekick, holding the machine near the chest. She waited for the information to come up. It's an old one? I asked. Old as you, she nodded. Sixteen years. No wonder it had malfunctioned. Tracker tags were supposed to expel themselves after a decade, after sending a signal for reissuing, of course. Far from home, too, she commented. Kitlope, a small range in Canada. They travel that far? Canada to lower Arizona is nothing for a mountain cat. Back in the mid-21st century, game wardens tracked some from California to Maine, crossing dangerous elevations as well as heavily industrialized cities. Grandma fastened the biostrip across the cougar's chest. After checking to make sure her patient was completely out, she programmed the tendrils to inject and retrieve the faulty tracker tag. The hair-thin tendrils were designed to snake into the animal's hide, avoid major organs, and pull the tag. That's crazy! The way they go so far, the cats I mean, not the tendrils, I clarified. It's one of the reasons I pushed for them to be the major terrain predator introduced to LaFan, she said as the biostrip beeped. A pebble-sized tracker tag appeared at the end of the tendril. She pulled it away, detaching it completely. Mountain cats, alligators, crows, and octopi are the most resourceful creatures to walk the earth, or swim, or whatever. Prime candidates for a planetary wildlife preserve. Preservation Planet. The idea still tripped me out. A whole planet allotted for wildlife, plants, and animals. No human settlements allowed. Grandma had showed me pics and vids of LaFon. The environment was far less harsh than the territories most wildlife roamed nowadays. Grandma grabbed the tarp from the drifter and slid it under the cougar as I attempted to roll the heavy cat on top. She flipped the switch and the tow cable dragged the sleeping giant into the crate. A separate line automatically pulled the crate into the flatbed trailer. I climbed the small stepladder and hoisted myself into the passenger seat, asking, How many mountain lions—excuse me— Grandma turned, shifted into first, and jolted us down the dirt road. Uh, sorry, I sighed. How many mountain cats are left? That's better, but don't know what you mean. Mountain cats are spread all over. The drifter had reinforced shocks and tires to keep the jostling minimal. No, I mean, how many are left for today? Oh. She checked the GPS. Got two more showing within a couple of clicks. Don't know if we'll get to them in time. The relocation project had plenty of cougars for LaFon. But this was the final wave of predator introduction, and Grandma wanted to take as many as possible. She disapproved of the term mountain lion because it wasn't only inaccurate, it was insulting. "'Lions are lazy scavengers. They lay around all day,' she had said once. "'They're called king of the jungle because they have pretty mane. They roar obnoxiously to show off. Mountain cats are precise. They can survive in a multitude of environments. Their shriek will chill you to the bone.'" It's rare to hear one cry out, but it's an unforgettable experience. By the way, she added, don't go mentioning his age to anyone. She thumbed toward the cougar crated in the back. Because he's sixteen? Yeah, I don't want some pencil-neck suit canceling the poor cat's trip because he's only got four or five years left in him. You mean Dr. Quantos, I grinned. Him, couple of others, they got different priorities than the rest of us. We continued to drive on. But each time we neared a cougar's location, they'd run off. Grandma would stop the drifter intermittently to see if one would return to its territory. She'd tap commands to set off the luring poles. Late afternoon passed and the sidekick's alarm chimed, indicating it was time to head back. But she was adamant about trying to get at least one more. Lafon was a sanctuary she'd spent most of her life working on, an idea started by a professor Grandma had known over fifty years ago. The professor was gone, but Lafon was near completion. The plant life, herbivores, omnivores, and decomposers had all been sent in stages over the past four decades. Grandma was part of a team of ten superluminal transports in charge of predators. Grandma slowed the drifter and rounded a shallow bend, the tires crunching over a row of dried brush. She checked her sidekick one last time and nodded toward the distance, past the hood. She didn't mention us being out after curfew, and I knew better than to bring it up. Sorry about missing that first shot, I said. For several heartbeats, she gazed quietly into the distance. Missing the shot, she shook her head. Hell, I'm sorry I didn't see the thing coming. She kicked the e-brake and turned to face me straight on. I was too busy looking at the tracker feed to notice I had a mountain screamer closing in. Scared the dickens out of me. Grandma rarely called the mountain screamers. She said it was not as insulting as lying, but unfortunately fit well. Mountain cats don't roar, they hiss, spit, and scream. Scared me, too, she sighed. Don't focus on the miss, but the hit. Only a certain caliber of person could pull off that shot when facing a pissed-off cougar. Caliber. Grandma loved that word. She didn't use it often, only when she was making a point. When I was eight, I had embarrassed myself at a piano recital. I couldn't complete one of Chopin's stupid runs. Had to keep starting over and over. Same set of notes played nearly twenty times in a row. My family had come to greet me at the reception area after. Everyone stared at me. Kids whispered and pointed. Parents hushed them. Grandma approached me first, and somehow I knew she'd know exactly what to say. Well, you didn't give up, did you? She smiled softly. The comment dropped over me like one of those blankets you see rescuers give people they pull out of freezing water. Yeah, I shrugged. Takes a certain calibre of person to say hail with it and keep on trying the way you did. Most would have ran off the stage bawling like a baby. I looked up the word later that night caliber, degree of capacity or competence ability. I didn't quite understand how it applied, only that grandma had made me feel like I was something special. But don't you fret about how close that screamer got to me. I had my shocker charged. She patted the pulse shot strapped to her thigh. The pistol-shaped weapon was set at 2,000 kilovolts. Why didn't you just fry him? I fingered my own pulse shot, wondering what it would have been like to use it at close range. Only relocators were allowed to carry pulse shots. Because that's exactly what it would have done. She glanced back at the mountain cat in the cage. Would have neutralized him, but it would have really hurt him. I might have even caused internal injuries. Internal injuries from a pulse shot? Even I knew that wasn't true. Pull shots were used by the police because they could stop criminals without long-term side effects. Grandma was a softie. Now be quiet for a bit, she said, leaning on the steering wheel. She read something on her sidekick. We got one, just past the lip over there. A girl, no cubs. She pointed about half a click from our perch. I readied the trank rifle as we left the drifter. The mountain screamer was nowhere in sight as we haunched down behind the lip in the ground. She probably saw or heard us. Grandma checked the tracker. Looks like she's taken the long way around. She may still cross our path somewhere north. The sun started its downward trek at our back, probably two hours away from setting. If Grandma didn't care about coming in late, neither did I. I unfurled my sleeves so the sun wouldn't bake my arms. It wasn't a blistering hot sun, but the breeze had stopped some time ago. Like Grandma, I kept checking our surroundings. Having the surprise visit earlier had left us on guard. She had told me early on that patience and remaining still were key to catching any type of cougar. If my constant head-turning bothered her, she didn't say so. I kept one hand ready to grab my pulse shot. No mountain cat was going to get the drop on me this time. Nearly an hour later, the cougar's stalking form appeared in the distance. Blending in with the vanilla land made determining her size tricky. Several times she seemed to disappear into the landscape. Though she was too far away, I knew her nostrils were flaring as she caught her scents, her lips rippling, haunches tense, ready to attack. I pictured the Mountain Screamer roaming the giant eucalyptus of Lafon, stalking prey. For some reason, pine trees didn't grow much larger than twenty feet on Lafon. Here we go, Grandma whispered. She deftly slid the menu option on her sidekick and brought up the tracker tag's controls. The Mountain Screamer's back leg twitched. Seconds later, she sat placidly on the ground and then lay down altogether. She was sound asleep by the time we reached her in the drifter. Seems too easy for the last one, eh? Grandma smiled. We loaded the cat and I checked the time, 6.45. Only an hour and 45 minutes after curfew. Maybe it wouldn't be a problem. Normally we pulled the drifter over and spent some time basking in the Sandabi sun with the A.C. cranked up. Grandma liked to stop and watch the landscape before returning to base camp. We were on the road for about twenty minutes when she hit the brakes and threw the drifter into park. She motioned for me to grab the roll of paper towels from the console. Her hand reached her mouth just as the coughing fit began. I tore one loose and placed it in her free hand. She gurgled deeply as her breath came out in high wheezes. I couldn't look away. I had to hand her fresh paper towels after she threw the spent ones aside. Like the others, the fit lasted about five minutes. The drifter idled loudly. Grandma leaned back and wiped her eyes with the back of her hand. The same strong hand that had ripped a trank dart from the mountain screamer's shoulder now looked old and frail. I didn't choke up during the fits, only when I thought about them at night. She didn't explain what was going on, she just coached me on what to do and thanked me for helping. She was adamant about not letting others witness a fit. Around camp, I was sure others had to have heard, but no one was saying anything. There was a line outside the shower stalls as we returned to base camp. Grandma had warned me early about this. "'Let the dirt settle behind your ears. You'll get used to it by the end of the day,' she'd said when we first arrived a few days ago. She was right, of course. Black grit lined my fingernails. Blotches of dust caked my arms. I didn't care. Several of the grad students had dropped out on the second day, opting for an incomplete in-the-assignment. Of those that remained, most looked miserable. Each always gave a pleasant wave to Grandma.' Somehow they all seemed to know her. I asked her how she knew so many people. She just said, Seen em around. After a welcome dinner of hot dogs fresh off the grill, Grandma got called to the main office. She brought me along. This fella's rude as all get out, but don't you worry none. He's just got a stern tone, that's all. Grandma was hinting that we were about to eat trouble. Not a good sign. Once inside the cramped yet immaculate office, Dr. Lawrence Quintos had to stand there while he finished some task at his desk. He acknowledged us with a wince, as if the dirt that covered us might infect his prissy aura. His clothes were made for outdoor use, but he kept them spotless. A thin layer of red hair atop his head was slick back. Or Tornado couldn't must that do. You're over two hours late, Quantos commented dryly. Yes, Grandma answered. Make sure it doesn't happen again. The loaders have a tight schedule for the overhaul to the space dock. Yes, Grandma said, even though this was our last day retrieving. Returning late again was an impossibility. As Quintos said himself, the loaders were heading to Texas with the mountain cats tonight. No one was retrieving mountain cats after today. I noticed we retrieved a male absent a tag. Yep. You prepped the new tag? Yep. I took a look at the specimen. Only Quintos would refer to a beautiful animal as a specimen. He waited for Grandma to say something. She simply waited quietly. You recorded aid estimation at three years. Quintos scrolled through the data. He's clearly much older than that. You've wasted resources bringing him here. I made a mistake, I guess. Quintos was doubtful. A mistake? Guess those of us out in the heat of the day are bound to err every once in a while. Grandma removed her hat and fanned herself. I've reported the error. Make sure it doesn't happen again. "'Also, I checked your whereabouts via your life chip. "'Make sure you remain within the designated plots from now on.' "'None of this made sense. "'Everyone was leaving for the space dock "'as soon as the mountain cats were delivered tomorrow. "'Quintos' orders were empty.' "'That's it?' Grandma asked, but it came out more like a statement. "'She was already leading me out of the office.' "'Yes, you're excused,' Quantos said to our backs. "'I absentmindedly held my side as we climbed down the steel staircase.' Somewhere inside me, my own life chip rested. I've never heard of a regular person using someone's life chip to track them. Human life chips were only used to solve kidnappings or murders. Schools weren't even allowed to use them to watch over students. Quintos didn't seem phased at all when he mentioned the breach in etiquette. No wonder Grandma didn't like the guy. Don't let his little posturing episode get to you, Grandma said, noticing my discomfort. I figure he had a frustrating life. Probably was expecting this not-for-profit business to be a bit more profitable at the admin level. He's an odd duck, I said. It was one of Grandma's favorite phrases. Yep, she laughed. But forget about him. Tomorrow we board the transport. Get ready to have your breath taken away. What do you mean? Well, I could tell you about the massive ship and all. How it towers over you. A marvelous, uh, marvel of human achievement. But nothing compares to standing in the presence of a superluminal freight transport. She grinned and patted my cheek. You'll see. Grandma wasn't kidding. The transport resembled a stadium, over 200 yards long and six stories high. Smaller tugships fastened into brackets the freighter's sides. The tugship propulsion jets made up the bulk of their hulls. Grandma had said that the tugships were the most underappreciated vessels of the lot. Twenty pilots have to stay in tune within a tenth of each other's debarking speed to lift this behemoth. Then they send it off toward the slingshot, only to pop off and repeat again with some other giant transport. No credit, no glory. And they get paid mid-range of all superluminal crews. A small crowd had gathered near the conveyor belt to watch the caged animals being loaded. This transport only carried mountain cats and hunter hawks. Not surprisingly, the hawk's screeches drowned out the mountain screamers' hisses and barks. The other transports would carry hyenas, wolves, Tasmanian devils, grizzly bears, Komodo dragons, and crocodiles. Most of the crowd was college students. They gawked, pointed, and recorded. Some noticed me standing on the authorized personnel platform, beyond the barricade. Only relocators were allowed to disperse the predators into Lafon. I stood proud, letting their envy wash over me. I couldn't help it. I was beaming. "'Quit showing off!' Grandma pulled off my hat, ruffled my hair, and slapped my hat back so hard it covered my eyes. I fixed it and grinned up at her. Her smile was twice the size of mine. I followed her up the gangplank, the steel railing cold under my grip. It took five minutes to reach our quarters. They were anything but luxurious. A small sitting dining area, sleeper bunks, and a refresher station. A closet of a bathroom in the back. Metal rivets the size of my fist lined the walls and ceilings. Everything was painted a gray primer. Cold in design and temperature, I rubbed my arms, already missing the Arizona sun. I almost forgot, Grandma said as she squeezed her clothes into the shelving units. There weren't any dressers in this cabin. Remember to pay attention during the slingshot jump. What do you mean, I asked. Well, they'll have a strap-in, that you know. Not really necessary, but a precaution. Anyway, they'll do the countdown and you can actually feel the difference at zero. What kind of difference? I've never felt it, but I heard it's an eerie, dreamy type of feeling. It has to do with the fact that your molecules, as well as the ships, must leave our universe to enter a different thread of the universe and return again. I tried to understand, but it was clear she had lost me. I squinted at her. She laughed. I'm no astrophysicist, but think of it this way. Our universe has the same amount of atoms since the beginning of time. I nodded, although I didn't get it. She went on. So if we leave this universe in order to space jump, our atoms are being added to another universe and taken away from this one. Yeah. My tone implied I understood, but it was clear I didn't. Supposedly, there's an exchange. A fraction smaller than a split second where the other you slips in and shares that space. And you can feel him? Him who? The other you, I said. Yes, just before you return to our universe. Some say they've felt it, but I never have. But it gives me a sense of peace knowing there's another thane out there. She gazed at the steel wall. I sat back and thought about this as the countdown started nearly two hours later. The jump happened, but I didn't feel anything different. Just the subtle jolt of the transport and then a second jolt as it settled. After the space jump, I realized Grandma had told me all that mumbo-jumbo just to distract me. Mom must have told her about the nightmares I'd had as the trip approached. Spending three days on a freighter didn't bother me. The opposite, actually. I was excited. Something else had been nagging at me. Something I couldn't figure out. Maybe it was because I was the only grandkid who'd opted to accept Grandma's invitation. That made me wonder if I wasn't grasping something that everyone else understood. Why wouldn't they want to come along? You got the schedule down? Grandma asked me over breakfast. We ate oatmeal with dehydrated blueberries and craisins. She frowned at the capfuls of sugar, I added, but didn't say anything. She'd woken me up two hours earlier than normal. The sugar was a necessity. Our schedule? Yeah, pretty much got it. It wasn't a strict schedule. We had three days of space flight as we approached Lafon. Plus, I counted on Grandma to just tell me what she needed. There's, um, something we've got to add to the schedule, she said hesitantly. Probably during the morning rotation, couple hours a day. She looked me up and down as if making some final consideration. What is it? She took a breath and then said, "'Follow me.' We ended up in the cargo hold. Most mountain cats slumbered in their cages. Others circled restlessly. "'Poor things,' she muttered. "'They're not made to be cooped up.' Weird. Grandma sounded as though we had nothing to do with it. The cargo hold was even colder than our quarters. I followed her to the back row of cages— She brought up her sidekick, checked the barcode, and recorded the number. The mountain screamer had sensed us twenty feet away, and now eyed us suspiciously. Would you mind grabbing a meat brick? Grandma asked and pointed to the dispenser. I hit the switch and a block of ground beef the size of my hand dropped down. A film of icy mucus covered the cold meat. After handing it to Grandma, I simply stood back and watched. The meat brick remained at her side while she punched a command into the sidekick. The Mountain Screamer's head snapped toward its haunches, and then it scratched its side furiously. Normally, mountain cats are put under a minor sedative when the tracker tag is removed. However, doing that would notify the mainframe that the tracker tag needs to be refilled after the sedative is dispersed. I just watched silently. Unlike the old tracker tag, newer tracker tags could be programmed to self-inject. The cat's scratching flung the tracker tag to the center of the cage. Dang, I was hoping it would land closer to the side. She broke the meat brick in half and handed me a chunk. Would you mind taking this to the other side of the cage? She asked, innocently. The Mountain Screamer followed me as I walked to the opposite side of the 10 by 10 cage. Grandma keyed in the passcode, opened the cage, and ran inside to retrieve the tracker tag. The Mountain Screamer heard the door open and turned. So I quickly stuck my arm in and shook the meat brick, clicking my tongue loudly. It worked. The Mountain Screamer was too tempted by the extra breakfast to notice Grandma. Grandma exited and the door shut. The Mountain Screamer licked its lips, barely noticing. She placed the tracker tag in her pocket and waved me over to follow as she approached the next cage. Well, one down, over two hundred more to go. She handed me the remaining meat brick. Without getting caught. Cameras, I said, pointing to the beams overhead. She pointed to a box high in the corner of the ceiling. She brought up the new window on her sidekick and showed me a diagram. Those wires run the video feed. I've set up a recorder for the nighttime hours. It records in two-hour intervals. I can switch it here. Then, when we leave, it goes back to a live feed. A loop, I confirmed. I helped install the monitoring system. Besides, this isn't a high-security risk project. Not-for-profits are like that. No need for oscillating feeds or trip wires. Plus, it's not like someone's going to try and steal a mountain cat in superluminal space. I held up the remaining meat brick. So you want me to distract them? That, and keep your eyes and ears up. Let me know if you hear someone come in. You never know who might suffer from insomnia and come visit the cats. Okay. Don't worry, William. I won't let you get in trouble. If we get caught, I'll tell them I told you it was all part of the procedure. I wasn't worried, I said. But why exactly are you removing the tracker tags? A promise to Professor Mignos. One of the conditions set up long ago was that all the animals had to have tracker tags installed once on La Fon. The debate went back and forth, but finally the department had to give in. You see, Munoz wanted the animals to finally be free. You can't have that if some poacher can hack into the system and trank you. Eventually, the suits argued people have life chips and they're free, and animals are just as free with tracker tags. Poachers on La fawn, Bad guys know no bounds. "'Setting up La Fon is only the first step in a long journey. "'Next is making sure the preserve stays safe.' "'I surveyed the cages stacked across the cargo hold, "'finding it difficult to think of this stage as the beginning. "'For years, all we'd heard about was Grandma's preparations "'for the La Fon Planetary Wildlife Preserve. "'The implementation of the final wildlife specimen "'didn't feel like a first step. "'Grandma insisted we eat our lunch an hour after everyone else.' I thought it was because she hated crowds, but the cafeteria was large and hardly crowded, even at lunch hour. It didn't make sense, so I decided to ask her about it. Your grandpa used to say it was because I thought a lot about myself. Like I thought I was Miss Popularity or something. But he learned soon enough I was right, she said as we sat our trays down. She'd grabbed one pork tortilla and two bulbs of milk. I grabbed two pork tortillas and one bulb of milk. I also throw on two pieces of cheesecake. "'Growin' boys!' she smirked. I ate quietly for a moment. She didn't talk about Grandpa often. I was four when he died. Never knew him. "'What do you mean?' I eventually asked. "'My unorthodoxly lengthened tenure at the university had me between many departments.' She wasn't going to talk about him. Not this time. She continued, "'I didn't mind covering so much ground. It just meant I had to keep track of more people. It seemed every semester I was meeting someone new—' As the years piled up, I soon learned I was somehow associated with everyone in some way or another. I'm not antisocial or anything, but more times than not, I ended up with a cold plate of food because I was caught up visiting. I realized it was true. Everywhere we went, someone always nodded a hello. Usually it was a simple wave, but other times they'd call her over. Some were complete strangers, and would introduce themselves as a son or daughter of a former student or colleague. I don't know, she shrugged. "'Guess I just got one of those affable faces.'" But I could tell it was more than that. Whether a quick nod or a flick of a salute, Grandma acknowledged most people in some way. Every once in a while, she'd stop and chat, genuinely curious how they were doing. Grandma ended up leaving half her meal that day. She tried drinking more water, but it wasn't enough. We hurried back to our quarters. She rushed to the bathroom and hunched over the sink. I pretended not to hear as I sat on the edge of my cot, my fingers flicking the springs. Sorry about that, she said as she came out. I shrugged. What was I supposed to say? That's okay, or I don't mind? Both sounded stupid. She dropped and sat on the floor across from me. It's not going to stop. Again, I just remained silent. She waved it away and changed the subject. I don't know if you realized I have access to the trank in your life chip. Really? Yep, one of the criteria for you to come along. I guess that makes sense, I muttered. I new access to the miner's trank was always kept with a parent or legal guardian. A chill ran over the back of my neck. She glanced at the bloodied paper towels. Fear and weakness play havoc on any person's mind. Grandma looked ashamed as she explained. My original plan was to trank you as we landed on La Fawn, and say you came down with something. But I've decided not to. Trank me? No, not now. She shook her head. I can't believe I didn't think I'd tell you from the get-go. Tell me what, I asked. And for the next hour, she laid it all out. The next day, two days out from landing and making the drop-off on La Fawn, Grandma became more reflective. We were in the back cargo bay that served as the bird sanctuary. Not really much of a sanctuary, though. The birds were individually caged and kept quiet by heavy tarps that covered them. We removed a tarp to watch one of the hunter hawks. It didn't cry out, just jump from side to side of the tall cage to the other. Grandma explained that this wasn't really a hunter-hawk, but a peregrine falcon. The fastest bird on Earth, it could reach speeds of 200 miles per hour when diving. The bird's black cap trailed down the side of its head like sideburns. Its chest reminded me of chocolate chip ice cream. After listing random facts about the bird, Grandma's tone changed. "'Why do you think nobody else came along?' she asked. "'You know, your brother, sister, cousins?' There was disappointment in her voice. The heat? I shrugged. And many people don't go camping the way you do, in the dirt and all? Suppose so. Her tone was distant. Summer hiatus? I tried again. How's that? Well, Germ's got credits to make up because of last quarter. I think Veronica has band reviews. Why'd you come? Looking around the large cargo bay, picturing the transport moving through superluminal space, the answer was easy. I wanted to ride another transport, especially a freighter. She perked up. How many have you been on? None like this. Not this cold, I laughed. Normal passenger crafts. Three of those. Once when I was four because Dad wanted to see properties at Musa. I don't remember that one too much. Then when I was ten on a field trip, we jumped to Saturn, drew pictures, took vids, and returned. I remember the fundraiser your school had for that. Some type of reading contract thingy? She gazed at the ceiling, searching for details. "'You hated reading. Your mother called to say you were entering some reading marathon thing. She said you'd have to come do reports every week, take tests, and that they'd keep a chart of everyone's scores.' She went to the dispenser and turned with a small chunk of meat. "'I barely read a grade level back then, and the upper grade books were worth way more points. I didn't think I stood a chance.' "'I knew you would,' she grinned, handing me half the chunk. "'Once I'd heard that prize was the Space Jump,' No matter how many books it would take, I knew you'd do it. Other kids didn't care so much. Their families go all the time. I tossed the meat in the cage. The bird snagged it before it hit the ground. It had been eyeing the morsel the whole time. Guess I lucked out that way. Eh, don't downplay it. You earned it. She was right, of course. The school quizzed me orally on two of the tests at the end of the contest, doubting that such a low reader could have scored so high. Do you think your cousins were scared to be on a ship with mountain screamers? Uncle Keith's kids, probably, because they're little. I should have been clear about how safe it was. Well, I trailed off. What? I don't think anyone knew you'd care. She waited for more of an explanation. I guess it seems like going to work with you, I tried. When Mom first told me, I didn't quite get what she meant. She said something like, Grandma left a message seeing if any of you want to go with her on her transport. For me, the Mountain Screamers made it more fun, but maybe it's not that way for everyone. Maybe everyone else felt it would be work. Or maybe they thought they'd be in the way. She got up. Well, you're here now. And you're not in the way. Grandma woke me around three in the morning the day the transport was scheduled to land. I need your help with a little something. She sat on the edge of my bed holding a bio-strip.
2: Your life, Chip?
1: I asked, rubbing my eyes as I yawned. Yep, it's time. She lifted the bottom of her shirt and wrapped the bio-strip around her stomach. She hesitated. A friend said this is going to hurt like the dickens. Shouldn't make a mess, but have a couple of med patches ready anyway. I grabbed two from the first aid drawer and pulled the tags off the ends of one. Grandma leaned back and pressed a command on her sidekick. Removing your life chip was a felony. An internal alarm is set to notify the nearest authorities. Fortunately for Grandma, the nearest receiving station was 22 light years away. The irregularity wouldn't register for quite some time. Sort of stings, she winced. But not too bad. She was lying. Her cheeks glowed red and a sheen of sweat started on her forehead. Gray strands of hair stuck to her neck. Soon she was doubled over, clutching the covers of my cot. It's out, she mumbled, unstrapping the biostrip. Here, I handed her the med patch and turned away. Ah, the stasis gel is kicking in, she exhaled heavily. I set the second med patch down and covered her life chip with a paper towel. It was twice the size of a tracker tag. A wave of nausea passed over me as I thought about the pain it must have caused. No worse than any of my coffin fits, she sighed. Her clammy hand patted mine. It felt as cold as the room. After a few tense moments, she rose, grabbed her covered life chip from my hand, and went to the bathroom. She hunched over the sink, washing her shaky hands, and splashed her whitened face. Gotta go feed the cats, she called from the bathroom. Don't they have automatic feeders? We've got to feed them back their trackers. She reached into a plastic bag and pulled out a tracker tag. The overseers haven't been running checks since the mountain cats have been caged up. Once they set them free, they'll run a quick check to make sure the locations can be clocked. How are we going to feed over 200 mountain screamers, I asked. Will there be enough time? If we don't dilly-dally, she gingerly stepped out of the bathroom. It was early, and I wasn't getting it. The confusion was clear on my face. She explained. The tracker tags will be in their stomach or intestinal tract when they run the chick. The transport will be halfway back by the time the mountain cats crap them out. Grandma. Sometimes her word choice surprised even me. She shrugged. What? That's what'll happen. <laughs> she coughed a weak laugh. A giggle bounced up from my throat. She winked and left for the shelves. I'll grab us some grub. You get dressed. She stopped and stared straight ahead. I'm lucky you're here, honey. After our quick breakfast us and the Mountain Cats, we returned to our quarters to await the official start of the day. Today was the day I'd prepared for the most. Each team would drive a drifter to a predetermined location and drop off ten Mountain Cats via a hitched flatbed. Cages would be opened at least two miles apart from each other. The Mountain Cats would be anxious, so remote openers would be used at each cage. Tranks were discouraged since it would leave the Mountain Cat groggy in its new terrain, and that could mean the difference between life and death. Our team consisted of Grandma, me, and some assistant named Cedric. We were the only team with three people. Two adults were needed in case the remote opener on the cage locked up. One to open the cage and the other to leash the mountain cat. Will the tranks work in the stomach? I asked. In case someone freaks and some team would rather put one down for a nap? Yep. So everything's set? Grandma just nodded. Something still nagged at me, but I didn't want to worry her. We met Cedric at the Drifter. He pressed his skinny arm into the plush tire of the drifter. The material swallowed his forearm. He grinned and pulled it free. "'Try it!' he said, waving me over. I did. "'You must be Billy Thane, Edith Thane's grandson!' His smile was warm as the air that rushed from Lafon. "'Yep.' I pegged him for one of those cool college professors, young so he was probably a genius, enthusiastic so he hadn't been burned by the system. He bounded around with unbridled enthusiasm of a puppy." The landing ramp dropped down. We were the third in line to depart. You all set, Cedric? Grandma asked. He ran his hands over his gear quickly and checked the specs on his sidekick. Yes, ma'am, he said, nodding emphatically. And I just want to say how awesome it is to be part of your team. We climbed into the bench seat of the drifter. I sat in the middle. I glanced at Grandma and back at Cedric, who was now leaning on the dash and gazing out the windshield toward the Lafon wild lands. He just kept nodding. Poor Cedric, I thought. He has no idea. If Cedric's constant yammering bothered Grandma, she didn't show it. She just shrugged when necessary, shook her head when necessary, and nodded along when necessary. We dropped off the first of our mountain cats without a hitch. The back cage opened and the animal took its first steps upon new land. We watched the view screen, safely from the cab of the drifter. Lafon's atmosphere had a red tint to it. The sun glowed orange as if setting, even though it was overhead. Grandma put the drifter into drive and we left the mountain cat to its new world. Cedric told us about entering his name in the lottery to ride with the Edithane, but how he didn't think he'd actually be chosen. This whole trip's been better than I ever imagined, he said. That made Grandma smile. Cedric kept his enthralling one-man conversation going as we dropped off the second, third, fourth, and fifth cat. I was so distracted by Grandma's ulterior plan that I forgot how amazing this venture truly was. As if to emphasize the exciting tone, a herd of antelope crossed our path and took our breath away. "'Pronghorns,' Grandma said, carefully driving into the herd. "'You're not going around?' Cedric asked nervously. "'Can't,' Grandma nodded toward the tail end of the herd. "'This bunch'll take nearly half a day to finish.' "'Amazing,' I commented. "'Yep, Le Fan's the perfect breeding ground for Earth's unrestricted invasive species.' Grandma had mentioned how all the plant life and herbivores were basically like the rabbits introduced to Australia over 300 years ago. Fortunately, Lafon didn't have any indigenous species to overrun besides the native plant life. Any earth creature able to adapt would have free reign to feed and breed, unhindered by hunting. Well, until the mountain screamers and other predators were dispersed. The herd picked up the pace as the mountain cats hissed and spat from their cages. Being far past the first generation... These pronghorns were encountering predators for the first time. Ironically, the threat of getting caught in the drifter's drive shaft didn't worry the pronghorns as much as the passengers on the flatbed. Will they stampede? Cedric asked. Possible, but not likely, Grandma answered. She didn't look worried. They haven't been attacked, so their instincts keep them from breaking out into a run. Clustered travelers like these pronghorns allow larger animals through, as long as we don't attack. We kept the windows up to keep the dust out. I could still smell the sharp tang of their hide. It reminded me of horses, although I hadn't been around many. Finally, we were through. Cedric and I turned to watch the giant herd of pronghorns. The mountain cats examined the creatures thoroughly. It came as no surprise that the sixth, seventh, and eighth cat each darted off in the direction of the pronghorns once released. Even several miles apart, they knew where to go. The ninth cat, our second to last, had a little treble upon release. Not the cat, necessarily, but the cage— Cage is jammed, Grandma said, stepping out and grabbing the pole leash from the rack. Should be all right, Cedric. Just pull the door open after I snag the poor missus. Be ready to zap her if she charges. Cedric took a couple of deep breaths and joined Grandma at the flatbed. Okay, ma'am, got it. He brushed his hands across his thighs as he walked. You stay in the cab, William, Grandma shouted. Holler if anything approaches. Basically, she wanted me to make sure Cedric was properly distracted. I did as told, waited until Cedric's full attention was diverted, and got to work. I pulled up the loose cloth covering the cushion on his side of the seat. After grabbing a trank cartridge from the box, I set it in his seat, needle sticking straight up. Grandma had cut open a crevice in the cushion to hold the cartridge snugly. I was facing forward when they returned. You did great, Cedric, Grandma said rather cheerfully as she entered the drifter. Thanks. I have to admit I was a little... Oh! Cedric bolted from his seat, clutching his rear. He nearly fell out face first, he was bouncing so frantically. Grandma darted out and rushed around the front to gather up Cedric. Watch that screamer, she called to me. I grabbed the trank rifle, made sure my pulse shot was charged, and dropped from the drifter. The commotion only encouraged the mountain screamer to run away quicker. Cedric's speech was already slurring as Grandma caught up with him and put an arm under his shoulder. I hurried back to the drifter to fish the cartridge out from under the seat and set it in clear view. Grandma waved me over to help hoist Cedric into the cab. Looks like you snagged yourself a trank, Grandma said reassuringly as she pointed to the trank cartridge. I grabbed it and held it up for emphasis. I didn't see... sat on it? Yep. Yep, Grandma and I said in sync. Oh, but I... I must have gone to... Cedric explained. Uh, "'Tried,' explaining. "'We laid him flat on the rear bench of the extended cab. "'Grandma set a folded blanket under his head. "'Poor guy. "'Guess winning that lottery didn't work out as he dreamed.' "'She rated the adrenaline shot as we checked his pulse. "'She'd bring him back to the land of the living "'if the Trank had left him with too weak a pulse. "'He's fine,' she confirmed. "'Might have a bit of a headache when he wakes.' "'I didn't feel too bad for Cedric. "'He was lucky Grandma didn't go with my suggestion "'from earlier that morning. "'A pulse shot.' "'Less room for error and guaranteed to knock him out.' "'I glanced back at the last mountain cat. "'We were close to the end. "'My heart pounded. "'Part excitement, part worry. "'Grandma started up the drifter "'and drove us the required mileage. "'Pretty impressive,' I commented. "'What's that? "'How you made it happen. "'A lot of people made it happen. "'Not Lafon, this last bit,' I clarified. "'I mean, how you set it up yourself. "'I think Cedric would have gone along with it. "'He was like a fan of yours or something.' Couldn't do that to him or anyone else. Getting them involved would also have made them accountable. She looked down to the bandage strapped to her stomach. Felonies are not something you want to drag people into. You told me about it. She drove on quietly for a moment, pulled over, and then said, William, there's something I've always noticed about you. You're gonna be all right. She pulled my hat off, ruffled my hair, and shoved it back on. Plus, you're a miner. A miner who ate his crazy old Grammy. Any court would be very sympathetic. Yeah, I said, deciding not to press the issue. She'd included me for reasons I'd never get to know. Well, let's get this last feller out. She pulled up her sidekick and tapped in the command. The mountain cat took a tentative step out of the cage. The rear-mounted camera gave a close-up, but I turned around to watch out the back window. It jumped off the flatbed and took a few cautious steps. This one was different from the others, not quite eager to run off into the distance. Once the large cat was clear from the cage, Grandma turned the drifter around so we could watch it straight on. She gave the horn a honk to coax the cat out into the wild unknown. The mountain screamer sat rigid and cocked its head, ears twitching. Finally, it darted off for the nearest tree. Grandma drove the drifter slowly in reverse. Once we were a safe distance away, she threw the drifter in park. Cedric's snores were the only sound as the drifter idled. William? Grandma stepped out of the driver's seat. Let's get on with it. I joined Grandma just outside the drifter. Did you recognize him? She asked as she gathered her gear. Who? That old fart out there! She nodded to where the mountain screamer had disappeared. That's a sixteen-year-old. Really? How could you tell? There was a nick in his left ear. Also a patch of fur grew differently near his right haunch. A scar. How'd you get him on the transport? Remember when I told you about poachers being able to hack the system and get information? Yeah. I'm the one who ran code for the initial database. No few keystrokes myself. Let's just say the old fart got a break. I didn't know if Grandma meant herself or the cat. For several moments, we stood there and breathed in the dry air. Fawn's average humidity was overall lower than most places back on Earth. However, the air felt crisp due to the higher oxygen content. Fifty percent versus twenty percent makes a big difference. It was said that fires burn twice as hot and twice as quickly on Fawn. That's the last of them, Grandma's sigh broke the silence. Pretty neat. I forced myself to concentrate on random Lafon facts. I refused to think about the end creeping in. Yep, pretty neat. We stared out into the distance, neither one of us ready to say goodbye. I scrutinized the eucalyptus nearest us. Strips of bark flaked down the large trunk. Planted nearly half a century ago, the leaves grew broader on their new home. I refused to look at Grandma. Instead, I continued my thorough examination of the eucalyptus. Eventually... She turned toward me, pulling me into a fierce hug. She said, You know what to do. I nodded, my face resting on her flannel shirt. A button pressed roughly into my cheek, but I didn't complain. She broke the hug and handed me her life chip. I hate to say it, William, but you better get. Can't dilly-dally out here too long. They've got that schedule to keep. Again, I nodded silently. I'm glad it was you. I shouldn't say something like that, but I'm glad it was you that came along. Grandma, I mumbled. "'Nope, no more.' She turned me and walked me to the drifter. "'You head out.' She lifted my hat, kissed my head, and gently put the hat back. No ruffling my hair this time. She was already moving at a quick stride when I turned around, her back facing me, pack swung over her shoulder. I wanted to run to her, convince her to stay. She warned me earlier she was set on living her last days out here. I would have camped with her if she had asked, but she didn't. Cedric didn't say much after he woke on the way back to the transport. Just the quiet hum of the drifter for half an hour. He was embarrassed. I told him Grandma had left to help another team and had asked me to drive back. He asked if he could drive the drifter up the ramp to the transport. It wouldn't look good having some kid driving while he sat in the passenger seat. I agreed. The phrasing repeated in the back of my head as I rode up the boarding ramp. My Grandma's probably already back. We're a little late because I didn't know the route and had to keep checking my sidekick. No further explanation. Besides, no one would ask. That was the plan. I can't believe I sat on a trank, Cedric sighed. I nodded. He stopped me just as I was about to step out. Um, he smiled solemnly. Don't go telling anyone, eh? Nah, Grandma said it could have happened to anyone, which was technically true, anyone who was unlucky enough to ride with us. We both let out a deep breath, but for different reasons. I made a beeline for the exit of the loading area. Soon, I was in the passageway, marching straight for the cabin. The cold air of the transport made my hands shake involuntarily. My shin banged on the bulkhead lip, nearly tripping me. Stop. Calm down, I admonished myself. No one had noticed. I waited nervously for the intercom to ask where Grandma was. Maybe Quintos or some random worker would notice we'd separated. But no one said a thing. Before I knew it, I was sitting in our... my quarters, rolling her life chip in my fingers as preflight started. Lafon would begin shrinking outside our porthole window, but I didn't look. Instead, I packed her life chip away. The intercom chimed, breaking my reverie. Henrietta Thane to the main control room. It was Quintos. My heart jumped. I calmed myself, rehearsed the script, and left.
2: Believe the lie,
1: Grandma had said. I checked my sidekick as I strolled down the corridor. We were ten minutes out from the slingshot, the point of no return. Hit that, and it'd be months before another transport was sent to LaFon. Even then, it'd be unlikely they could find Grandma without her life chip. I blew warm air into my hands. Henrietta Thay, report to the main control room immediately. Quintos sounded annoyed. He was using that all-call over the ship's intercom. No more stalling. I took a deep breath and stepped into the control room. Quintos hovered over the shoulder of a crewman. Five other crew members worked various stations. Dr. Quintos, I said, announcing myself. He turned, frowned, and asked, What are you doing up here? My grandma's not feeling well. She sent me to see what she needed. I realized I hadn't changed my gear after coming in from Lafon. He gazed at me and then turned to face the crew. Captain, something's wrong. Halt, start up, Quintos commanded. Each person paused and looked at Quintos as if he'd just asked them to bake a cake. We can't just stop, one of them spoke up. We have tugs on standby, a slingshot waiting for the order to start initial charge. Quintos's cheeks glowed. But if I didn't know better, I'd say he looked angry. I understand your procedure, but let me remind you I am the director, and I can alter the schedule should I need to. What's wrong with our current schedule, the crewman asked. To answer his question, Quintus waved me over to a separate console and pointed. I need your grandmother to explain this. A readout labeled Henrietta Thane took up most of the monitor screen. All body systems displayed flatline. He monitored our life chip data? My stomach lurched. It was possible that he would use the life chips to verify locations of staff members, but accessing personal data was an invasion of privacy. It was like accessing someone's bank account or medical records. You accessed my grandma's personal data? I said it loud enough for the crew to hear. <clears throat> yes, he sputtered, and then quickly regained his composure. And I'm glad I did because otherwise this anomaly would have gone unnoticed. I stared at Grandma's readout. This was not part of the plan. I didn't have anything to say. Her life chip showed she was on board, but didn't register any life signs. Quintos stood rigid and crossed his arms, examining me. The crew member who had spoken up joined us at the console. He verified what Quintos was claiming. Can you explain this? he asked. He was obviously the leader. The rest of the crew waited, curiosity written all over their faces. Like an idiot, I just stared at him. My chest went shallow. I felt cornered. It was no secret she was sick. Quintos said, more to himself than anyone else. For several seconds, he stared past me. I coughed, trying to say something. Anything. "'What's going on? What has she done?' Quintos loomed over me. The head crewman just looked at me with a mix of disquiet and expectancy. "'I don't know what you mean. My grandma's resting in our quarters.' He shook his head and pointed to the readout. "'I barely caught this recently. I was doing a final check before debarking.' He sounded as though he were justifying it to the crew." According to the readout, the life chip's been reading empty for several hours. I shrugged. It's unlikely you would have gone all this time and not reported anything. Quintos slapped his hand on the console. If she's got others involved, I will figure out what's going on. Don't let him bully you, I heard Grandma whisper. He thinks you'll run away bawling like a baby. I stared right back at Quintos and didn't say anything. Who else is involved? He asked, glaring down at me. Involved, I asked? Involved in what? I took a harder look at Quintos. He wasn't angry, but worried. It made me wonder why he cared so much about Grandma's life chip, why he cared about her whereabouts. He leaned in and whispered, Is she down there? How'd he know that? I gaped up at him. Quintos stepped away, nodding to himself. Are we back on schedule? the lead crewman asked. He was a smaller fella, but he put some authority behind his question. Quintos put up a hand he must have figured it out shortly after discovering Grandma's life chip readout. But why did Quintos care? Grandma had warned me that the higher-ups would grill me once we reached home and saw she wasn't on board. They'd be worried about liability and such. She'd prep me on what to do if anyone went looking for her before we debarked or during the trip. But she didn't give me a story that would prevent Quintos from storming into our quarters because he had hacked her life chip. Quintos turned and examined Lafon on the nearest viewscreen. "'Why's he gotta get me off planet? Grandma's voice asked in my mind. "'He doesn't like animals. He hates his job. Not as profitable as he had hoped.'" "'Poachers!' I blurted. The word shot out of my mouth as it hit my brain. "'It has to do with poachers.' Quintos snapped around, his eyes wide. "'What are you talking about, son?' the lead crewman asked. "'I don't know why the word popped into my head like that, but the shock on Quintos' face gave it away. His pencil neck went red. The blush crept to his ears.' I recognized the sudden change in demeanor, the same agitation a mountain screamer shows when it senses a presence nearby. I had struck something in Quintos with that word, poachers. Poachers here? The pilot turned in his seat, asked, "On the fawn? That's impossible." A different crewman added, scrolling through his display screen. No ships have passed through the Fornax Slingshot besides us, not in the last three months, anyway. Time to hunt. No, I said, not yet. They need someone to feed them coordinates, send them schedules, safe times to hit Lafon, Quintos stammered. This is ridiculous. We have a passenger MIA, and your conjecture <coughs> hypothesizing about poachers? You're saying Henrietta Thane's a poacher, someone asked playfully? A chorus of soft chuckles drifted across the bridge. Even here, Grandma's reputation was solid. Hold on, the lead crewman barked, silencing everyone. What's the deal here? Why are we postponing our superluminal jump? I sucked in a deep breath, held it, and then took my shot. Dr. Quintos hacked not just the life chip intel, but other key systems as well, to coordinate with poachers. Ridiculous! Quintos said dismissively, but his body language said otherwise. His pale lips squeezed tight. I might have missed the bullseye, but something connected. Not so ridiculous, the pilot commented. You did hack a civilian's life chip, the one we know about. I didn't hack it. I have the authority to— No, you don't, I said. Quintos surveyed the crewman for support. He scoffed. "'You know what? Go ahead and proceed with startup. I've got work to do.' He marched out of the control room, throwing his arms up demonstratively. The lead crewman stepped in front of Quintos and grabbed his arm. "'Head to your quarters,' he said, and stay there. "'What?' he asked. "'You're confined to quarters pending an investigation.' "'You can't,' Quintos muttered. "'You don't have the clearance. You don't have a bit of evidence.' As chief helmsman on this route, maritime law grants me the authority to confine any passenger to quarters should I see fit. The lead crewman didn't release the iron grip on Quintos' arm. There's no evidence, Quintos said, his voice rising. It's a boy saying whatever he can to mislead you, all of you. Maybe, but there's not a complete lack of evidence. There's enough to warrant an investigation. The chief helmsman let go and turned back to the main console. He swiped away Grandma's readout. I'll be monitoring your whereabouts on this vessel. I do have the authority to monitor my passengers' life chips. Don't make me waste time with an escort. It'll be your job, Quinto said as he left the bridge. Doubt it, Chief Helmsman said absently. All right, everyone, let's not waste any more time on dramatics. We got a place to be. He watched the door shut and then turned to face me. So she's really down there, huh? Old Edithane decided to stay dirtside. I didn't say anything. Instead, I took a breath and sent my brain into overdrive, readying my next yarn. Relax, kid, he said, patting my shoulder. I knew it was a bluff the whole time. Well, up until Quinto started jarring all over the place. Guys, wound tight? He's an odd duck. The chief helmsman was quiet for a moment. He shook his head. Sure do wish I could have said goodbye. Tell her how her little speech about me and my caliber back during my cadet days pushed me through some uncertain times. You knew her? I said, Why the hell do you think I asked for this gig? He smiled warmly. Now get out of here. My heart was still racing as I stood outside the control room. There was a soft jolt as the freight transport debarked for the slingshot jump. I headed back to my quarters. An automated message announced that the jump was just minutes away and passengers needed to secure themselves. Wall straps were available in the corridor, but I hurried to my quarters. For a second, I expected to find Grandma sitting on her cot. I had to remind myself that she really was back on Lafon. I would concentrate this time during the slingshot jump, try to focus like she had mentioned. Maybe somewhere in another universe, another Grandma was able to come back and ride alongside another William. Either way, it felt like she was there right next to me when the jump hit. <laughs>
2: There you go. Don't forget. Copyright is Doug's Doug. Thank you so much. Listen, big thank you. And well done for getting, kind of getting in Asimov's. That's just amazing. And Jonathan, thank you so much indeed. So that is today's show. One little kind of thing, and I'll mention probably more on show 400, that don't forget that I am kind of, now I'm back back to kind of reality and my mind's more focused now instead of like trekking across the hills and wilds, that I'm more into science fiction and kind of getting back up to speed, that I do... The little short critiques, you know, or not short critiques, the critiques for short story writing. So they wanted me to actually read a story and give you some thoughts. Do you know what I mean? Please send us an email and I'll, and I'll tell you kind of how it goes on. But I'll send it over in MP3 format. And I've had quite a few, to be quite honest. So if anyone's interested, you know, if they've got a short story and they think it's nip and tidy and tucked and let it, let you know... Send to me and we'll see how kinda of, how it really settles out and you know feels. But like I say, I'll I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that next week. But it's over at gmail.com Until then I'd just like to say good night from me.
0: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting
2: installment of Stretching Sofa, Evacuation Procedure Machine. Shovel set for wash. Airlock will be opened in
0: three, two, one.